Abby and Benton here with TC Talk, where we talk about TechCom. Specifically, we're picking up our conversation about vaccine communication that we started in the last episode. So go listen to VaxCom Part 1 to get caught up. And we're back after a break that was not at all short. It's been like a week since we were here. <laughs> yep. Because I got sick. Seems relevant to mention for this particular podcast. Yes, not with COVID. Right. Although that would have been fitting. Uh, but some kind of respiratory thing picked yes. up from daycare. So where were we? We were talking about the Panic Virus book. And I was talking about how it's good to read in depth about the history of vaccines and anti-vaccination sentiment because it does shed light on the present. And one thing that didn't surprise me, but that I found very insightful is the fact that ever since there have been vaccines, there have been... Skeptics. Skeptics. That's a good word. And that the core arguments against vaccines really haven't changed all that much through history. They have they fall into the same kind of camps. And here's a here's a quote that I think explains that well. He says, Looked at in a vacuum, it's remarkable how static the makeup, rhetoric, and tactics of vaccine opponents have remained over the past 150 years. Then, as now, anti-vaccination forces fed on anxiety about the individual's fate in industrialized societies. Then, as now, they appealed to knee-jerk populism by conjuring up an imaginary elite with an insatiable hunger for control. Then, as now, they preached the superiority of subjective beliefs over objective proofs, or knowledge acquired by personal experience rather than through scientific rigor. Have you noticed any of that going on with COVID denial? Yes. That sounds like uh, that that elite one is tied very much to conspiracy theories of George Soros and his ilk. Bill Gates. Bill Gate Bill Gates. He was a he was a vaccine guy before it was cool. How do you know? Like that that was one of the big focuses of the oh, Bill and Melinda oh, Gates oh, oh, the, uh, Foundation. Malaria. Malaria Thank is you. what they focused on and you know other tropical diseases because there isn't money for it and that's where you can be philanthropic is when you can do a lot of good with not a lot of money and there isn't any money to be earned. It's a drop in the ocean for your own fortune and it makes you look good to the public. Yes. But And I'm sure it feels it good actually to them makes too. a difference also. Yeah. There's potential for, the for more difference. So that is the uh, fear of the elites. Personal experience versus objective reality or science. Truth. People trust a story where they don't trust the data. I love the way you put that because that explains why some of these impassioned anti-vax parent posts in Facebook groups could be much more compelling than the dry, emotionless delivery of research from public health officials. You and me are both relatively scientific-minded people. You're more of a communicating science-minded person, but um, not everyone 
is compelled by a chart the way that we are. Yeah, and it's easy to forget that. Mm-hmm. And not everyone is compelled by the CDC as we are mm-hmm. or these other sources that we kind of inherently trust, which is why when sometimes I have students do projects about misinformation and health communication and often they come up with these things that are like, here are some tips for avoiding misinformation. Number one, go to trusted sources like the CDC. And they're totally right. You know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with saying that, but there are so many audiences that that would not reach because because they don't trust the CDC in the first place. Yeah. In my efforts to empathize, I can kind of see where that mistrust comes from because do you remember way back at the beginning of the pandemic when we were only hearing about it in China and it was starting to trickle into the U.S.? The CDC said... Masks don't help. The thinking there was, if I remember correctly, they didn't want to inspire people into panic buying N95s when healthcare workers needed it. And this is embarrassing looking back on, but I remember in February... Of 2020. I was flying out to a conference, and I saw people with... Not many, but some people wearing masks in the airport. And I thought to myself... Oh, that's a little extreme. And I also remember as I was getting ready to depart, one of the last things you said was, bye, don't get COVID. No, at that time we were still calling it coronavirus. Don't get the coronavirus. Yeah. And I was. Back when we had time for all those syllables. (laughs) Half of me was like, ha ha. Yeah, right. And the other half was like, I hope not. "This This might be a thing. And indeed it was and is a thing. But thinking back to that moment, I was kind of on the flip side of that controversy. Mm. Yeah. For just a little bit of time, I was looking down on mask wearers. Again, that's part of that empathy piece is being able to acknowledge that I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I got better information and I changed my mind. Yeah. And so it can happen. And I think that that was a misstep on the part of the CDC early on. I think it gave leverage to people who were already primed to mistrust them. Definitely. And the other thing is that, this is another thing I took from Manukin. vaccines have harmed people. Polio in the 50s. Ah. Did you know that dozens of kids died from a polio vaccine? And, and hundreds, hundreds were paralyzed. Yeah. And what happened was there was one lab. Their vaccines had gotten contaminated. Cutter labs. Ah. That would give you pause, right? Hmm. And that was a moment in the history of the United States where there was probably the most consensus around a public health initiative ever. Yeah. It was ultimately a very successful campaign. But there's dead kids at the end of it. Nobody wants that. The 50s were the absolute height of trust in science in the United States. Like World War II, you know, obviously science made a, a very large presence in the ending of the war with Japan. During World War II, there was so much ramping up. I've of... never heard a more euphemistic way to say that. Yes. Science made a very large presence. 
More like science made a very large absence of millions of lives. Uh, but yes, go on. Yes, I mean, I mean, you know, I know what you mean. So, for making explosives, for making all of the materials that went overseas for the war effort, there were these these industries that either were just kind of small industries and or it had to grow orders of magnitude as fast as they could to support the war effort. Mm-hmm. Or they, you know, just had to be invented from nothing. And so at the end of it, you know, everyone was like, great, now we can stop making guns and bombs and tanks. And the manufacturers of these things were like, shit, what are we going to do with all of this building and equipment and the chemical industries were famous for, you know, like, okay, well, we have, we have all of this equipment. We're good at making this explosive. It's kind of close to fertilizer. Let's see if this kills insects. So the chemical industries definitely had a lot of, like, experimenting and DDT is one of those things that came out and it was an amazing bug killer. It was great at getting mosquitoes out of the way. But it had and long-term it, unintended consequences. And it fed right up the food chain, had a very negative effect on avian populations. Birds. Sorry, I'm trying to sound smart. <laughs> but that was the exception of bad publicity for them. There was so much, like, new chemistry and, like, better living through chemistry was a household phrase. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there was so much trust in chemistry and, you know, the associated pharmaceutical industry that was like, ooh, chemicals can do good things for us, too. So there was there was just such a blossoming and... So it outpaced the regulations, it outpaced the science for knowing if this was actually a good idea to do. It outpaced the ethical conversations that needed to happen. Is exactly what I was going to say. They were moving too fast back then. Yeah. And, I mean, polio, it required an urgent response. COVID required an urgent response. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a balancing of these tensions. Mm Mm-hmm. Caution and urgency. But I think with the COVID vaccine, I think it was handled as well as it could have. By the, the CDC, uh, that is. The the vaccine development oh, yes. testing process. I mean, Trump calling it Operation Warp Speed didn't help matters. Um, To go back to like that decision by the CDC to say that masks don't make a difference, it wasn't a good idea. But I absolutely see the thinking in, we don't want to make a panic. But here's what it comes down to, is not trusting people, not trusting the public. And to be fair, I was naive back then in thinking, we can trust people. We can trust the government? No, we can trust <laughs> the public. Oh. Like, why, yeah. why can't the government be <laughs> fully transparent with us? Like, why can't they put out the same credible data that they have? If everyone has the facts, everyone will do the right thing. In theory. In theory. Uh, But yeah, the thing about science is that 
you talking about the kind of blossoming of chemistry makes your life better type thing. Mm-hmm. What needs to go along with any of that messaging is, I hate to say this, but scientific literacy in the sense that people need to understand that there is no such thing as no risk. And that's an impossible standard to hold something to. That doesn't mean we have no standards, but it means we're doing the best we can with the evidence that we have. And that's mm-hmm. leading to this recommendation. And the outliers, the cases where there are extreme side effects or the cases where there are breakthrough cases of COVID in the vaccinated, those don't detract from the overall picture of the effectiveness of the vaccine. And here we come back to that anecdote versus big picture thinking. Mm-hmm. So I want to take a sidebar here. So you've mentioned scientific literacy. Which group would you say is the most important to be scientifically literate? Kids. Meaning that's that's the age at which you want to start introducing these ideas, at least. Oh, okay. <clears throat> sure. And maybe it's not about scientific literacy so much as it is about scientific institutions clearly communicating. In 2015, I would have said that the most important group that needs to become scientifically literate is policymakers. Now, I would put them second. And I would say that media, that specifically news media, they are the most important people to get science right. Because when they put articles about, you know, cruise ship was tested for coronavirus. Six people had had COVID. Two of them were unvaccinated. That is an absolute travesty of a story. Decontextualized data. Yeah. Because the emphasis is not on getting an accurate message out, but on sensationalizing and getting clicks. And hey, so capitalism is the problem. Capitalism is the problem. But yes, and... Manukin actually would agree with you. Okay. And this actually isn't a direct critique of media so much as he's acknowledging the inherent challenge of science communication. The realities of the scientific method also present an uncomfortable challenge for anyone tasked with explaining to the public why this inherent open-endedness doesn't negate the high degree of certainty that accompanies widely accepted conclusions. And so there's this combination of He says, ambiguity and authority implicit in science. And that relationship is really hard to grasp. And because we probably can't trust all media outlets to start being trustworthy and scientifically literate in how they report on these things. (laughs) Start. in (laughs) In the absence of that, people should be informed about how to interpret that. That is a tall task. A tall task. Is that a saying? A tall, tall order. That's what I was going to say. That's a tall task. And I think people can be taught about the ways that published, peer-reviewed science moves from the world of the experts out to the public and the distortions that can happen 
along the way. Classic example of an intentional distortion is Andrew Wakefield, again, Mm -hmm. because he did publish an article that passed peer review in a prestigious journal. And I I have to credit uh, Lauren Kolejewski, who wrote an article rhetorically analyzing... The Wakefield article. The Wakefield article. Okay. She's talking about how Wakefield took advantage of the inherent uncertainty of science that gets Mm. written into these articles and deliberately misconstrued it to suggest to imply something that the data didn't suggest let me try to explain that like i said before the wakefield article doesn't actually say there's a link between the mmr vaccine and autism but no article could say that because you can't prove anything 100 percent and so in most scientific articles, authors use these hedges. Kolejewski calls these discursive gaps, where to scientists it reads as one thing, to the public it reads as another. Uh. To the public, it reads like, oh. So you're saying there's a chance. Precisely. Whereas scientists would just read that as, oh, okay, that's a scientist doing what a scientist does. Hmm. He's covered yeah. his tracks. He's not made any direct outrageous claims here in this say, article itself. We can't say for certain that it doesn't cause autism. Yeah, but the very act of drawing attention to it is enough to make it seem like it's a thing. And then he would have these press conferences where he would take those discursive gaps and just run with them mm. and really push his perspective while having this published article to kind of lean back on. But his audience of parents who had not been listened to or who were concerned about changes in their children, whatever, Mm -hmm. they were probably not going to read this either. And certainly they weren't going to read it in the way that a scientist would. Right. And so that's where some education might come into play, not just... The science literacy, but the science communication literacy. Again, crediting Kolejewski with that. Understanding how science is communicated, how scientists interpret it, what it means and doesn't mean for everyday people, and who might want to take advantage of distorting findings or exaggerating findings for attention, financial gain, whatever. That kind of reminds me of the uh, XKCD comic. It was kind of making fun of the, you know, like all of these things that companies get to put on their box. They had Cheerios, now Ebola free, like (laughs) on the box. This raises more questions than it answers. (laughs) It seems like that level of deceptive saying that, well, yeah, I mean, there, there isn't any Ebola in Cheerios. But the fact that you brought it up, um, but you brought it up, so that does that mean that all of these other cereals could have Ebola? <laughs> so it's it's kind of the uh, letting the layperson put the dots together. Yes, and you're expecting them to put the dots together in a way that favors you, but mm-hmm. that may not be accurate. And then you have plausible deniability. Yes, that's where I was trying to go with that. I made it. Enthemes of deception. Sounds like a Dan Brown novel. This is the part where you, a lay person in regards to 
technical communication and rhetoric say, what's an enthymeme? Remind the audience what an enthymeme is. Okay, this honestly could be its own episode, so I'm not going to go there. But the gist is, it's sort of structured like a syllogism, which is a logical kind of if-then statement. And it relies on common sense or common knowledge to kind of fill in the gap from A to B. So it's a persuasive tactic. When it kind of leaves out that central premise, it allows the audience to kind of get there themselves. So Wakefield, of course, got pushback from scientists, but he was a master of PR. (laughs) Mm. And he was a master at creating a persona that appealed to these vulnerable parents. Mm -hmm. And so there's a couple things to note here. Again, thanks to Manukin for drawing these to my attention. But the first thing is that narrative piece. Like placing yourself in a grander narrative. So Wakefield, he's not a grifter. He's... A maverick fighting against the medical institution and supporting these parents where no one else will. Hmm. And meanwhile, these parents... Okay, so Jenny McCarthy, you heard of her? Mm -hmm. She's probably the biggest celebrity name in anti-vaccination, but people saw her as... She perhaps even described herself as a mother warrior, right? And so there's this grand narrative of you're in a fight against a greater enemy, and it's all because you love your child and you're fighting for them. And I get that, right? I am a parent. Mm -hmm. And when I imagine being in a situation where I feel like I'm not getting straight answers, I'm not getting support, that is a recipe for disillusionment with the medical system. Yeah, and that is that is a recipe for becoming susceptible to misinformation. It's not mm. always intentional misinformation. Another embarrassing confession, but do you remember when we first had Zoe? Mm-hmm. We had the Dr. Sears baby book. Yep. It was gifted to us. Had like the like a blue green green. cover, like a row of babies on the front, very unassuming. And I did not realize until reading the Manukin book that Dr. Sears is a big character in anti vaccination as well. But here's the thing he won't say he's anti vaccination. Like, again, people want to have it both ways. They don't want to be known for being against something. They want to be known for being for parental empowerment right, or and some bullshit like that. Yes, or they want to be for the right for parents to choose for their own children. And again, it's tying in with that very powerful narrative of nobody knows my child better than I do. I remember reading the book and coming to the vaccine section. And it was a short one. I think he has separate books all about vaccines. But it didn't come right out and say, don't get your kids vaccinated. But it did offer an alternate vaccine schedule that kind of spread things out more, delayed Mm -hmm. things a little bit. And fortunately at the time, 
we weren't there. I don't know why I dismissed it, but fortunately I had there was something that made me go, eh, I'll listen to my pediatrician. It is definitely in keeping with the the philosophy of that book. You know, it it's all about like natural childbirth. Don't medicalize something that doesn't need or that hasn't been for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Which is reasonable, but you know, you do that and you are purposely ignoring the entirety of science. I had a home birth. Mm-hmm. Not on purpose, but you realize we chose to go the all-natural route. Mm-hmm. And so are you saying that we were denying science? To be fair, I wasn't saying that wanting to demedicalize pregnancy and birth is a bad thing. It's just that you do need to keep in mind what the infant mortality rate was a hundred years ago. It wasn't small. Like, there's, there are reasons that you might want to have actual doctors involved in the process. That isn't to say that it's always doctors, a good idea. Yes, doctors have fucked it up. They, Especially they meddle. with pregnancy and birth. Oh, and they've made boy. things worse in a lot of ways. They've got made things better, but they've also made things worse. And so here's what helps me tap into that empathy mm-hmm. for the vaccine hesitant. Is that... There are real cases where doctors have failed them. As of right now, there is not a way to fill that gap other than some of these online communities, right, where people can get support. That can be a great thing, but, again, very susceptible to misinformation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not letting the medical establishment off the hook here. Part of it is that... The healthcare system in our country is fucked up. Doctors don't have enough time with their patients. Mm-hmm. Not everyone Capitalism. Ha- not everyone has access to healthcare. It goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be an acknowledgement of those people who have been harmed by the system, ignored by the system. Yep. But we also need to do that without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. To keep the metaphor close to home. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But it's it's just really interesting to think about how years ago we had some overlap with those natural parenting circles and we knew people who were doing a delayed vaccination schedule. Mm-hmm. And so I get that sense of, I hate to say peer pressure, but that's what it is. And it's not the peer pressure of like, hey, want to smoke a joint? But but like the fact that other people around you are doing it. It feels virtuous. It, well, in, in that it's not like anyone's telling you you need to do it this way, but you kind of see other people living their lives and making these choices that seem to turn out well for them and that they mm-hmm. have positive things to say about. I don't know. I think we got the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. I think we, we remained firmly tethered to science and acknowledged the benefits and necessity of medicine in the situations where it was necessary. And we also didn't have to put up with a lot of bullshit that women get in the hospital. Like stuff that stuff that has its roots in hmm, the fifties. Actually. Let's let's control it. That's what it was about. Controlling the situation. Hmm, it seems like you're having too much pain. Let's do something about that. Yeah. Hmm, it seems like you're not progressing fast enough. Let's do something about that. But then my doctor voice. 
That's how doctors in the 50s talked. It's true. So, yeah, we're, we're really getting off track here, but we could have gone too far. Mm-hmm. And nothing, goodness. nothing is more important to, the, to me than the health of my child. And if I sincerely believed that I would harm my child by vaccinating them, of course I wouldn't do it. And I would fight it. These parents aren't out there because they want their children to be harmed. It's the opposite. They're just severely misinformed and stubborn. And yeah, they're just wrapped up in the wrong belief system. And it's very hard to break out of that when everyone around you believes that way. And Dr. Sears, and I found this astonishing when I read about it in The Panic Virus, but he's exhibiting what Manukin calls medical nimbyism. Oh. Nimbyism as in not in my backyard. Yep. So these rules should apply to other people, but I'm the exception. Yeah. And so what he said is that I I suggest to my parents that they not get X vaccine for their children, but not to spread the word about it too much because we need other kids getting vaccines so that there's herd immunity to protect the kids who don't get the vaccine. And of course, it wasn't said as bluntly as that, but that's the implication. Hmm. And I had no reason to follow the vaccine controversy in the 90s early aughts, right. right? Because didn't have a kid at that time. It was fringe. No, it wasn't. No? Like, that's my point, oh. is that I I had no idea. Like, it's very easy for me to do the whole Monday morning quarterback thing and be like, how could people be so stupid as to believe this stuff? But it got picked up by mainstream media. Oprah gave a platform to Jenny McCarthy all these outlets were platforming anti-vaxxers for attention mm-hmm. and views. It's both sides-ism. Yes, 100%. If there is any debate, that must mean that it's a Each a side is dis- equally valid. Yeah. And will just... Everyone has some validity, at least, to their viewpoint. Yeah, and it, it's been done with climate change. I think people are, I mean, people have been catching on to this tactic and calling it out, which is great. But, um, again, looking back at the time when this MMR autism discussion was going on, I can see why parents would be confused. Mm. And, And like you said, the media is a big player in this, and there needs to be accountability for that. Mm-hmm. But in the absence of being able to control that, there needs to be other things we can do. So a couple things that might work. So first, we've established that there's different reasons that people might oppose the COVID vaccine. A message that's going to work on someone who's on the fence is not going to work on someone who's a diehard skeptic. This almost seems like um, some of the stuff that we were or that you talked about in your dissertation. Yes. You know, the distrust of the authority and trusting the anti-authority. I wrote my dissertation in 2015. It was about trust in e-health websites and Mm -hmm. communities. I was much more optimistic about it then than I am now. Yeah. I didn't fail to acknowledge the problems with online communities, but... You didn't see how bad it was going to get. But I also generally had this belief that 
we can entrust people with real knowledge. <sighs> and we can to some extent. And and I okay, so where I where I'm coming from with like the research that I do right now on online medical information is that I'm not going to say don't google your symptoms. I'm not like there's no point in trying to stop people from doing what they've already been doing. Yep. And there can certainly be some benefit in googling your condition. Mhm. And it's like trying to trying to put a detour sign for a river. It's just not going to listen. <laughs> yeah. It's not about saying, cut this out, or this is all bad. It's about saying, this is a thing that's happening. It's a reality. How do we intervene in the situation as it is? What does it take to get people to a place where they are seeing good information and able to trust it? You have to ask, why are they going to these spaces? How do we meet that need in better, safer ways? Here's a better analogy. Abstinence-only education. <laughs> yep. It's not going to stop teenagers from having sex. But what it will do is fail to prepare them to have sex in a way that is... Responsible in any manner? So... It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. That's not news to anyone. Maybe there are people who are too far gone. But maybe yeah. one way to get at who's the TFG versus who's persuadable is to ask them, is there any evidence, like hypothetically, that would change your mind about this or that would cause you to reconsider your position? Maybe. Because if they say no, their mind is closed. Yeah, it's a challenge because people who are people who double down and don't accept facts, they aren't going to be changed by more facts. Mm -hmm. They're just going to be like, eh, yeah, yeah, you keep saying this sort of stuff. Like people, they are driven by emotions. What I have seen in discussions of how do you get people out of this is fighting fire with fire. You get people who are like skeptics of climate change to take it a little more seriously, by hitting them with something visceral. You need to be worried about forest fires because climate change is going to burn your house down. And you're going to be... Dead? <laughs> well, either dead or a climate refugee. Yeah. And that works on people? Or do you think it should work on people? <laughs> um... I'm just saying that, like, going with the emotional... Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, going, going, you know, shooting for emotions, you might hit something, whereas if you're shooting for facts, that's, that's an absolutely lost cause for someone who is already not going to trust facts from mm -hmm. the establishment. Yeah. So scare people about COVID. And I think that's happening. There's so many like, stories of people on their deathbeds who are like, I wish I'd gotten the vaccine. Still, somehow, people find ways to dismiss that. It's because conspiracy is self-sealing, mm -hmm. right? Oh, absolutely. There's always a way to defend it, no matter what the attack. Yeah, so those are the TFGs. And what's interesting is, so even Mnookin talks about the appeal of the, you know, the emotion mm -hmm. behind the story of my kid who became disabled after getting X vaccine. Mm -hmm. And he also uses that appeal himself. The very the opening story in the book is about a young child who 
gets hib, which is something that has been largely unseen in recent years because there's a vaccine for it. Is there a another name for hib? It's a bacterial disease. Hemophilus influenzae type B, or hib. And so initially the doctors didn't even recognize it. Huh. I was pulled into the story, like I cared about this child and whether he would recover. So eventually an older doctor recognized it. Oh, back when I was a youngster, we used to see this all the time. Immediately knew how to treat it. It had gotten late at that point for treating mm-hmm. it, and so things were really sketchy. But the kid pulled through. So the, the point being that emotion is not inherently bad. And this is something that is hard to grasp because it's easy to... Even Aristotle did it, right? Oh, if only audiences weren't so easily swayed by emotion and only used logos and rational thinking. But then again, the whole point of his idea of rhetoric is that it's this combination of things that contributes to persuasion. Overlooking emotion, I don't think, is the answer. But it needs to be used ethically. Let's use every... Every tool in the box. 